text this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 2, the first five verses. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come in His name this morning before Your presence with worship and awe to give praise and thanks to You. We come to hear from You, to hear Your word, so that we may be transformed to be more and more like the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we behold His glory shining in His face, we ask, Father, that You would change us into His image, that we would see our great King and come humbly before Him to, to worship and adore Him. We pray this in Christ's name, and amen. Amen. Uh, sometimes during election cycles, you'll hear people say, or maybe you'll see the bumper sticker, Jesus for President! And it's a, it's a, you get the idea, you get the sentiment behind why somebody might say that. But the, the problem is it's a, a really driven by faulty assumptions. You see, Jesus doesn't need for us to get enough people interested in him so that we maybe can get him on the ballot so that maybe enough of us could vote for him so that he might be in control and, you know, turn this uh, ship around. Uh, That sounds like a good idea, but in fact, Jesus is in control of everything. He is ruling and reigning even now on a throne, the throne of his father. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down. He sat down because he is already ruling and reigning. So while we would love to have a, a visible king, we do have a king and he is in control. And he is reigning and ruling until that day when he will come again. This is the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent is a season of remembering. It's a season of anticipation. A season of coming as we contemplate uh, not only the incarnation of Christ when 2,000 some years ago he came. But also that we look forward to another coming. The coming of our reigning king. And so this morning, our text, drawn from Isaiah, is a a very hope-filled beginning, introduction to a very bleak and dire situation that Judah and Jerusalem are facing. 
If you read further from verse 6 all the way through chapter 3 to the the beginning of chapter 4, you would hear all of the woes that Isaiah pronounces against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that, he paints a bleak picture of a Jerusalem that has departed from worshiping God to serve idols. They have been unfaithful to him. They have not kept the law. And Jerusalem has not been a central place where Yahweh, the Lord, is worshipped. And so, but before he begins his indictment, he grounds that exhortation in a hope-filled message looking forward to the future. What will Jerusalem and Judah be like eventually when the Messiah comes? Uh, Verses 2 and 3 are verbatim found also in Micah chapter 4. For that reason, we think uh, that possibly this is a common uh, reflection on the latter days. When the Messiah would come, what would it look like? What would happen when the Messiah comes, when he ushers in the latter days? Uh, the latter day is, is really just a stock phrase used by the prophets to refer to the Messianic age, uh, the entirety of the age. And the prophet sees a time in the future when the mountain house of the Lord will be elevated above all of the hills. Uh, it will be exalted over all of the nations. And that will cause the nations to stream in to Jerusalem. Now, the house of the Lord is a, is a term used to describe the temple and the dwelling place of God. And the imagery of the temple comes from the beginning, from Genesis, when God made Adam, he placed him in a garden sanctuary. And the garden sanctuary was a place where God met with Adam, where he dwelt with him. Adam worshipped him there, and Adam was given the task of guarding and keeping, of tending and keeping the uh, garden sanctuary. And the language would later be used to describe the priestly work of watching over the tabernacle, and then, of course, also the temple. But Adam was also given a mandate, commonly called the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply, to subdue and rule over all of God's creation. Adam, as the chief, the head, and the representative of God's creation, was a vice-regent. He was a king. He was a priest-king. He was a king that was to rule underneath the authority of God. That means listening to the word of God and directing all of creation to glorify and and worship God as well. Adam was a proxy king. Uh, You might think of the stewards of Gondor if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, right? Uh, They have a perpetual stewardship of guarding the kingdom of Gondor, but their the rightful rule belongs to the king. And uh, so the story unfolds. Well, Adam was like a steward to guard and keep the whole of creation as a king. And that the temple is then a place where God is served and worshipped and, of course, where he mediates his rule. But like Adam, Jerusalem and Judah... They are in the process of rebelling against God. 
and the temple and the people God had called to serve and mediate his rule, the priests and the kings, were both turning away from the worship of God to other idols. Just as Adam did, the serpent came into the garden and tempted him, saying, Did God really say, I don't think that God's going to kill you. He doesn't want you to eat this because he knows you'll become a god like him. He was tempting Adam to reject the rule of God and to be his own king, right? And this is a common temptation of all of us since then. Every sin is a rebellion against God choosing our own way. We want to be our own kings, our own masters, and so we reject the kingship of God. But if you were to flash forward to the latter days, the age when the Messiah will come, provides the prophet Isaiah with a solid base to exhort the people of Judah and Jerusalem to press them to where they should be. Where should we be as a people, as a city and a nation? What should it look like? Even though from the New Testament perspective, we are in the latter days, there is much in this text that is already but not yet. If you've heard that phrase before, what Jesus accomplished on the cross purchased the end, brought the end into, the, into our current time. The Jews only marked time in two ways, this present age and then the age to come. We are in the age to come, and that began when Jesus came and especially when he ascended to the Father. So there's much in this text to exhort us towards a hopeful expectation even as we hasten the day. We also don't have a Judah and Jerusalem that is worshiping faithfully, that is under, submitted under the rule of Christ. So as we work through this text, I want to show you the reign of Christ, how it was established, how Jesus in his rule and reign draws all men to himself, and how when he brings them to him, they are changed forever. Now, one of the questions that comes up immediately is, why is the mountain house of the Lord, in verse 2, not already the highest mountain around? If you did your geography, you'd, you'd find out that uh, the, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is, is just barely higher than Music Mountain in, in Jefferson um, Township. And uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not a very big... I've always kind of scratched my head over why it's called Music Mountain. I, I came from the Northwest, so we had Mount Hood right in my backyard. And, you know, that's a mountain. It has snow on it all the time. And then I saw Moosic Mountain. I I was, where is it? I'm still looking for it. (laughs) Uh, But but nevertheless, it provides a good comparison because the the Temple Mount is not the highest mountain in Israel. Mount Carmel is higher. And of course, the the crowns of Bashan, you'll, you'll hear that the, uh, the uh, mountains of Bashan uh, referred to in the Psalms, those are the higher peaks. Those are up north in northern Israel. And so why is it that the Temple Mount is not already the highest point? And uh, of course, uh, this actually provides a, a stunning imagery of what's happened because of the fall. You see, when Adam sinned by rejecting God's authoritative word, by rejecting God as king... Uh, Every sin since that has done the same thing. And in a sense, 
What God allowed to happen in the temptation of man and the fall into sin is to, to secede rule to another person, to Satan, to the ruler of this world. And Satan, that crafty serpent, had gone before us in rejecting God as king. And when Adam was tempted and rebelled, God cursed the serpent and the man and his wife. And as our covenant head, that curse spreads to all of his posterity. We are under the curse of sin and death, which is the domain of Satan. Jesus calls him in John twelve thirty one the ruler of this world. And Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You see, when Satan came and tempted Jesus in Matthew 4, he tempts him to turn stones into bread or to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. But the last of the temptations is he takes him up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he says, you can have all of this. I will give you everything that has been given to me. All of my dominion over this present world I will give to you if you will worship me. Now he was trying to tempt Jesus to take something that is going to be his, but wasn't at that time. And he's trying to tempt him to take it in ways that are not faithful, right? He's trying to tempt him to take it without dying, without going to the cross, And so he has very real authority over very real kingdoms. And these are the hills. These are the hills that are exalted above the mountain house of the Lord because of sin. They're the hills that have rejected God as king. But right from the beginning, the curse uh, of Satan, God promised that there would be Enmity. There would be a constant war and battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent until one day a seed, singular, would come and crush the head of that serpent. Um, and that, and uh, the nations during this time, waiting for this latter day, waiting for the Messiah to come, they are marked by rage. Right? We read about this in Psalm Chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2 is a telling picture of this period and also uh, how the Lord thinks about them. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. We, we don't want them to rule over us. We reject their authority to be kings over us. Well, what is God's response? He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The psalmist is is saying the exact same image of that latter day when the mountain house of God is exalted on high and His rule and reign is made evident. And He is established above all rule and authority in heaven and on earth so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, King. Amen. Amen. From Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. The, the, the import there is that you can submit now to Jesus as King, confessing that He is, or you will be made to submit later in recognizing that He is King. Because He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. And so... The mountain house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And that is referring to the reign of Christ. And Christ's reign is established when he comes to die. The path that leads to him being the victorious reigning king is a path of suffering and death. It's a path that leads through the cross to resurrection and the hope that the latter-day king is reigning, is that he rose again. He, death could not hold him. He could not be kept under the power of sin and death because he has an indestructible life. And so he rose again from the dead and he is established as the king. Right? The, first, uh, the last thing he tells his disciples before he leaves the earth He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus bound the strong man and he plundered his kingdom. And he is continuing to plunder that kingdom. Every knee is all the nations and many peoples. Notice at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All the peoples of the earth are drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to his reign. There's a magnetism that brings them from all of the nations. Jesus said in John 12, 32, When I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And since we have been going through John, we know that the apostle is fond of double meanings. What does it mean to be lifted up from the earth? Well, of course, it refers to his crucifixion. But the cru- a crucifixion is the, the most bloody, torturous deaths that the Romans could think of. It was reserved for only the worst and not for Romans, for slaves and other conquered peoples. But, but the instrument that is the worst possible death becomes Jesus' exaltation. He is lifted up from the earth on the bloody cross, which is also him being lifted up in glory, being exalted as he is established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And that's um, exactly what Paul is referring to in Philippians 2.9. The first, uh, of course, leads to the other. Uh, the, the, the exaltation of him being lifted up on the cross leads, of course, to him being exalted in great glory. 
Now, Isaiah notes that the nations are drawn to Jesus to be taught by him, as it says, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The reigning, exalted Christ gathers to himself disciples. Disciples are learners, those who have enlisted in the school of Christ, those who have come under his teaching. And he teaches not like the scribes, but he teaches with authority. Because he is the word of God in the flesh. He speaks a true word from God because he reveals the father like no other prophet has before. Because he is the very embodiment of God. The exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. The author of Hebrews tells us. Now if the path the king walked led to the cross... Why do you imagine that the path of discipleship to be any different? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the gospel paradox is that up is down, and down is up, and the back of the line is the front, and the front is the back. The path to life is through death. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the way of Christ. Have you committed to this kind of apprenticeship apprenticeship with Jesus? To be taught by him that will inevitably lead you through suffering, through a daily dying to yourself as you mortify your own sins, but also as you wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have enemies. They are constantly warring against us. But the way to Christ is is the path of the cross. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. He walked faithfully before his father, not just to set us an example, but to be our atoning sacrifice. But he also, uh, he also taught. And as he did, he corrected all the mountains of abuses that have piled up in their interpretations of the law. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, as he authoritatively teaches them the law of God. This is what the law was intending. It was intending that your hearts be wholly turned to the Lord. Not that you uh, scrupulously follow every outward commandment while inwardly you hate God and you hate your brother. But because you love God, you love your neighbor. Because you love God, you are driven to obey Him. Because uh, your heart has been circumcised and not just your flesh. And the same it goes for you and I. We have been washed in the waters of baptism, but if we sit in the pew every Sunday and our hearts are not transformed, if we're not seeing the vision of Jesus Christ and having our own lives reflect that in transformation, then what what are we really saying about the gospel? When we scoff and mock at, at the ways that Jesus calls us to sacrifice and die, to turn the other cheek, and to even be salt and light in the midst of a, a world that is uh, completely rejected Christ as king. Does your witness before a watching world declare 
clearly that Jesus is your King, that Jesus is your Lord, that you have submitted your life to His rule and reign, and that your love for Him leads to the great desire to follow Him in obedience. If that is not true, then we need to, we need to, we need to be uh, examining our own hearts to make sure our lives are reflecting the true gospel and not some other gospel. When you come and die, you find that the life that you get on the other side looks wildly different than the life you had when you pretended to be king yourself. And the result of living life under King Jesus is, of course, a restored humanity. A life that is not marked by constant enmity. Under the reign of Christ, swords are repurposed into tractor parts. Satan's one goal is to keep mankind from submitting to Christ as king. And what better way to do that than by having mankind constantly in a struggle for dominance? In Satan's economy, resources are scarce. And if you don't get yours first, your neighbor certainly will. Better to kill him and take his than to try to share these scarce resources. But this is a lie. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to him. And in his economy, there is no running out. Oil jars that should run empty don't. And bread comes from heaven and feeds a generation of people for 40 years. And not one of their sandal straps wears out. That's God's economy. There's no scarcity. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's like, it's like the image that Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 47 of the water flowing out of the altar. It flows just a trickle out of the altar, but then it goes out the back door. And he looks, and it's, it's up to his ankles. And then he goes a, a few thousand feet away, and it's, it's up to his waist. And then he goes even further, and it's, he, he can't even cross it. That is the grace of God outpoured for all of humanity when he has, is in the process of restoring humanity to its original glory and beyond, right? Because it's not a zero-sum game. There doesn't need to be war in, in the eschaton, in the latter days, because the Christ is in the midst of her and... And that's how Christ's economy works. Less is more. Five loaves become 12 baskets and the 12 disciples become an unstoppable force that turns the world upside down. Twelve fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, a whole group of people who should never succeed at anything that they do, especially gathered as a group. Most of them probably did not agree on anything before Jesus called them. But wait a sec. What happens if a nation were to right now beat its swords into plowshares? Would it not be invaded by its neighbor? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, the prophets often saw things that look like one event, but in reality unfold over time. Theologians have come up with an expression that helps us interpret this called the already but not yet. 
You see, in Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning now, these things are true. Jesus is in, on his throne, and he has been exalted above the heavens. And yet, we don't see wars ceasing. We don't see nations beating swords into plowshares. The battle that won this kind of peace was waged by Christ on the cross. And he he came to bruise the head of the serpent and create out of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man by uniting them together. And the promised peace of the last days is already breaking in to this present world in the church. It is here that we work to beat our swords into plowshares. We put away the weapons of warfare against one another and we begin to sow righteousness and peace. It is in here that we begin to practice the peace that is already won in the victory of Christ. But in an ironic twist, Paul, he ends his letter to the Romans with a telling remark. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, just let that sit with you for a moment. The God of peace is going to crush something. Either I have a weird notion of what peace is, or I need, to get, I need to wrap myself around what God is doing. The decisive victory that brought peace, we could call that God's D-Day. It was accomplished on the cross. But, but just as V-E Day did not come for almost another year, So we await the complete fulfillment when Christ comes again. You could say that we won the war on D-Day. But if if you went to a soldier on the battlefield and you gave him orders and you said, Son, I want you to take Berlin. He's going to be kind of lost, right? He's thinking, I can't even get up on the hill. How, How am I going to take Berlin? This picture that we have is zoomed all the way out. We're not talking about the the intricate details of how the battle is won. We're seeing the battle already won, already accomplished. The peace is already reigning. But until that day, we're still fighting. We're still fighting a battle. Peace is won by fighting. And a a battle to preserve what ground has already been won, but also to advance and gain more ground. Now, we don't do this with the same kind of weapons. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul says we're at war. We are at war. But our warfare is not, we don't have the same weapons. And they're weapons that are used By the God of peace to crush Satan under your feet. You, the church, are crushing the head of Satan even now as you take every thought captive. As you destroy strongholds. As you submit to the rule of Christ and you call others to do the same. 
We're armed with the sword of God's word to proclaim a message of peace to the nations. Calling them to come and to bow the knee before the true king of kings. And by calling the nations to submit to his reign through the proclamation of the gospel, people will come. They will be drawn by the Holy Spirit to come and be taught the way of Christ. And they will lay down their arms used to fight against the cause of Christ. Think about Paul. What was he doing? He was armed to the teeth, ready to go and kill Christians. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks. And he said, I'm king. Why are you kicking against the goats? And Jesus totally transformed his life. And then he began fighting for a different cause. He was no longer against Christ. Now he's fighting for Christ. And he takes that message of peace and he publishes it across the entire empire so that he can say, I've finished the race. I've run my course because I preached that good news of peace and I saw lives transformed and drawn to Christ their King and changed to love Him, laying down their own arms in service of the King. He did it because he had the same hope that Isaiah had. Isaiah is not looking at a Jerusalem and Judah that's perfect. He's looking at a messed up situation. But he sees because he's got hope. He knows what the outcome will be. What God is doing even in his day. Preparing Jerusalem and Judah for the Messiah is the same thing that Jesus Christ is at work in this valley. We look out and we scratch our heads and we think, how on earth is this going to be accomplished? It's going to be accomplished through you. As you take the good news of the gospel to your neighbors, as you refuse to capitulate to the culture by taking every thought captive to obey Christ, as you submit to the rule and reign of Christ and call others to do the same. As you point them to see the exalted, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for your reigning and ruling Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are compelled we are drawn to him where else would we go he has the words of life we come to be taught we have enrolled ourselves in the school of christ father fill us with your spirit so that we may walk and wage war not with fleshly weapons but with weapons that the god of peace has furnished us to crush the head of that serpent May your work be done so that the earth may be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, so that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Amen.